Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everyone. Howard David Live. We welcome in Jason Cole, who's been uh, writing about the NFL for, what, as long as the NFL kicked it in the air, right? Uh, Alice and I had uh, had lunch together a couple of times <laughs> back in the 30s. Um, <laughs> 1992 was my first year covering the league. It was after you started covering the league, so there you go. Yeah, so. no, my first year, I want to say, well, I started calling football. You know, my first job was actually covering Princeton football. Uh, the, really? My first game was Princeton at Dartmouth. Now, here's, here's the irony. And Princeton, a beautiful Hanover. There you go. Magnificent. Magnificent. Uh, here's the irony. My grandson just graduated high school. And among the schools he got accepted to was Dartmouth. Uh, nice. But his dream was Harvard or Princeton. He, he didn't get into either. Uh, but he's accepted to go to Dartmouth, and he's going to begin there in... I want to say about a month and a half. So we're very excited for him. It should be. Yes, it's a great, it's a great school. A little isolated, but great school. So I'm working for this guy. He was the owner of the company. He was also my color man. 
He was, he was, uh, his color was battleship gray. Uh, <laughs> so we're doing the game and Dartmouth was like the power of the Ivy League when I first started. They beat Princeton 37 to six. So I had to do a recap when the game was over for our news department. So I did, you know, Dartmouth beat Princeton 37-6. They would dominate, blah, 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 blah. When I was through with it, and my boss says to me, you want to do that again? I said, why? Was I, was I wrong? He goes, no. He said, you should have said something nice about Princeton. I said, Herb, the only thing I could say nice about Princeton is that nobody died. <laughs> so he finally got the idea. And one of those reporter from uh, the Trentonian uh, who was standing there watching all of this going on? He's looking at me and he goes, he's shaking, he's shaking his head like he couldn't believe uh, what was going on. <laughs> but exactly. know, that, that said, um, I, I read uh, yesterday, I guess it was, about the Jets uh, getting involved with hard knocks. Is that fact now? Um, I haven't checked it out. I mean, I assume it is. I, I don't really care about hard knocks that much. So if they're the ones who are, uh, taking their turn in the barrel well you know i feel bad for them but is there any other story to me i know it's a big deal to the teams i would say that is there any bigger story right now in the nfl than aaron Rodgers and the jets oh no no it's good i mean it's got everything it's new york it's aaron Rodgers. it's uh, it's, you know one of the one of the great quarterbacks in the last 20 years it's everything you know so to me this is this is the go-to story. If you want to write anything about the NFL, you start with Aaron Rodgers and what he's doing. Um, whether that is at a Hiawaska conference, um, whether that's you know the fact that they just decide to cancel their you know last week of um, of off-season training, which you know they under the guise that they've gotten everything done. The truth is that, you know, Rogers wasn't going to be there. So they didn't want to have to deal with that fiasco. Um, or is it Rogers, you know, basically telling him who he wants to, to be on the team essentially, because he's going to have control of the roster in, in, in a large part, they've ceded control of this team for at least one year to Aaron Rodgers. There's no question. Uh, if I said, uh, that Kansas City, Philadelphia would be two of the teams you would mention if you were thinking about who's going to be in the Super Bowl this year. You probably it, 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 it's a decent guess that the last sure. year's participants would get back. But let's go beyond that a little bit. Philadelphia, Kansas City, Buffalo, Cincinnati, uh, Baltimore. Um, am I leaving anybody out at this point? And would you include the Jets in that list? Yeah, I mean the Jets have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, so. With one of the best quarterbacks in the league, you have a ch- chance to get in the Super Bowl. I think you left out the Chargers, who have an up-and-coming quarterback. I think you've also left off the Dolphins, who I think the quarterback's got a lot longer way to go. But they played pretty good football for a lot of last season. And they have, you know, you know they're interesting. So, you know, the AFC, the AFC side is incredibly deep with contenders of teams that I think all have some some form of a chance. The NFC is not as deep. I, I think it's Philly, and then there's a big step down, and then there's another big step down. In the AFC, I think it's fair to say, if you looked at the AFC East, uh, and I was I was amused when I heard Mike Tannenbaum, the former uh, Jet and Dolphin general manager, when he said, if New England Patriots get 
DeAndre Hopkins, they're the, the team that's going to come out of the AFC East. And I, I looked at the screen like, what? What is he drinking? I, I mean, DeAndre Hopkins is a nice receiver, but let's face it, he's not the guy we remember from four or five years ago. Well, he's pretty – now, I'm going to say he's still pretty good yep. when he's on the field. The problem is he's not on the field for either suspension or injury, right? So the issue is how how much can he get on the field? But he's still a really good player, um, and he's a red zone threat who you know makes who has a chance to make their offense much more efficient. He's also a third down guy, but in and of himself, no, he doesn't raise the level of the Patriots enough where you put him ahead of those other three easily. Mm-hmm. Can I paint a scenario in which the Patriots win the division? Yes. If I'm betting, are they more likely to be last place? Yes, they're far more likely to be last place than they are first place. But mm-hmm. they're going to play representative football. Um, and the more likely is they're probably either second or third. But the Bills are still the team to beat. And I think the Bills had a, had, have had two very instructive years the last two years. And that is that two years ago, they almost got to a Super Bowl. You know, they were, you know... Um, basically a game away from playing it. They came back like gangbusters at the beginning of last season. They played so hard in the first four or five weeks that they established themselves. Everybody thought, oh, this team's just going to roll over everybody. And then they hit the wall, which is you got to play 17 games in the regular season. I think they learned from that, and now they're like, oh, we're going to turn this on in the second half of the season. We'll play well in the first half. We'll pace ourselves in the first half of the season when the games are supposed to win, you know, establish ourselves as a serious contender, but save all that energy to the end of the year when you really have to make the push and you really have to get your momentum going. So I, I really like the bills coming out of this division. Yeah. He's Jason Cole. Let me ask you about Dalvin cook. Uh, two teams in the AFC East have been linked to him, the jets and the Miami mm-hmm. dolphins. Uh First of all, why is he even out there? Why is Minnesota uh, – is this a business decision? Yeah, it's a business decision. I mean, it's also – you have a GM who didn't draft him and who doesn't like investing in running backs and doesn't want to pay a pay running back and, you know, thinks that you can replace this, this position. And generally, that's not – he's not necessarily wrong in that, in, in that case – but you have to understand where your team is and its development. And Dalvin Cook would should have been worth paying for one more year to make sure that they then had a replacement for him and they could transition to the next guy. They have left themselves in a lurch of, excuse me, not having a guy who can catch the ball out of the backfield that well. Madison's all right. He's not great at it. And – this is a team that I think they went seven or eight no last year in the regular season in games decided by a touchdown or less. Now they famously lost their playoff game to the Giants by a touchdown at home, which is a telling thing to me. If you're Minnesota, it's like we were good last year. You know, 13 and four is a really good season, but we won a lot of flip of the cane of the coin games. A lot of games where one play can change that game very easily. They're really much closer to a nine and eight team than they are a 13 and 14. And they should have done more to bolster their or keep their offense together for one more year, certainly while they waited for a transition from Dalvin Cook. But yes, there's some decline in his play. I get it. That's why it's a business decision. 
Yeah, I could see the Dolphins uh, for an immediate answer because when you look at the Jets, Brees Hall, you know, had a serious injury last year. And before the injury, he looked like he was the real deal. And he still may very well come back and resume where he was. But they've also got Michael Carter uh, and Zonovan. And I'm thinking to myself, the Jets don't have this immediate need. Why would they go shopping for Dalvin Cook? Well, look, I think ultimately he wants to be in Miami. He's a Miami guy. He's a Florida guy. That's where he wants to be. And so right now, the Dolphins know that. A, a, they know that. B, they know there's no urgency. Like, they're not starting training camp. You know, like, there's no reason to sign him today to get him into training camp. You can wait three or four weeks, and you can see where is the price coming because they know he's their first choice. And they can offer him, say, you know, whatever the number is, a 30-year deal with $12 million guaranteed or $8 million guaranteed, whatever it happens to be. He wants more money than that, obviously. So he's in no urgency to sign. There are no urgency to sign him. Let the market play itself out. I think that that's what's going to happen here. With Rodgers gone from Green Bay, does this elevate Detroit as the team to beat in the NFC North? Probably. I mean, Minnesota won the division, right? So you, you make this great argument that Minnesota is the best team and the team to beat in the division. I, I don't believe that. I just think Minnesota was very fortunate last year. I thought Detroit played a more consistent brand of football, not defensively, but offensively. And they made a couple of moves to improve that, you know, like improve their backfield, get more explosive in their backfield, really dedicate themselves to we're going to run this kind of football. That's number one. Number two, they play – they're zigging while everybody else is zagging, okay? And this is not – I'm trying not trying to make Dan Campbell sound like a genius, okay? Because he's not, okay? He's a hard-nosed football coach. But he's the hard-nosed football coach at the right time in a league where everybody's playing three and four wide receivers so much that if you come in with power football and say we're going to gut people, it works. It's sort of like Tennessee with Derrick Henry – is really effective football when everything is healthy um, because they do something that's a hard matchup for the rest of the league, all right? So Detroit is doing that right now. I can make a really good case for Detroit winning that division. Their problem is they're Detroit, okay? Like, when have they ever been good? When have you mm -hmm. ever said, I trust the Detroit Lions? Like, that they're actually going to go out and win games. And that hasn't been in my lifetime, okay, ever. Like, they go back to, what, the the 50s, when the last time they won a championship? Maybe yeah, it was 19, 62. Yeah, I can't. 19, 1957. Right, 1957. This team hasn't played consistent, you know, never has played consistent football. So why do I trust them to get it done? That said, I, I don't know that I trust anybody in that division, particularly from much. I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see Jordan Love. I'm fascinated to see if Justin Fields can take a, at least a modicum of a step uh, improvement as a passer because he's so explosive, right? Minnesota, I want to see if they can hold serve, and I want to see if Detroit makes the kind of improvements that elevate uh, elevate them. Right now, it's a crapshoot in that division. Uh, we, we hear about Jimmy Garoppolo and he injuries. He's frequently injured. So if you look mm -hmm. at a Jimmy Garoppolo now, <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo is healthy. What does that do to his team?
Look, he knows he knows that offense a little bit better. But the way that Josh McDaniels runs his offense is very unique compared to everybody else in the league. Okay, it's a it it is a traditional in that you don't read the safety first, you don't read the defense. What you do is you read pockets of the defense and where where is it to go, and you basically have a man side and a zone side to your to your op, to the offense, right? And if it's man, you come, you're over here and you're doing certain reads. If it's zone, you're over here and you're doing certain reads, right? Like that, it's it, it's kind of complicated. It's kind of funky. Garoppolo was trained in that offense, so he's a little bit better at it. But the sum total of Jimmy Garoppolo, if you rearrange the letters in his name, don't you get, you know, don't you get car? You, you know, aren't you, you know, like it's the same player. Um, One's a little more injured, a little bit more often. The other one's not. I, you know, I, I, I don't think this was an improvement. It's a band aid to cover the fact that they weren't ready with what their next step in the plan was. Is get a guy who knows the offense. He'll be a little bit better at it, but they're only marginally better. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't disagree. Uh, look, it's only June. We got a lot of things to go through. Right. But uh, I, I'm intrigued, and I come back to the beginning, the first topic, Aaron Rodgers, he's been the biggest story, you know, and uh, what would be success? The Jets make the playoffs and lose game in round two? Jets win the Super Bowl? I mean, what's acceptable for what you have invested? Well, I mean, successful. I mean, if you're successful, you're making the playoffs, all right? I mean, that, that that's a first step. For this to be worth it, to push it in? I think you have to make the Super Bowl, or at least you know, isn't at least an AFC Championship game with, and then he comes back for another year. You pushed in with Aaron Rodgers. If you push in with a thirty-eight-year-old Aaron Rodgers, this is not a rebuild. This is right. This is you know, guns blazing. We gotta. We're you know, we're burning the house down. We're all in the whole thing, and you only hope that. Zach Wilson somewhere in here learns something about how to play quarterback and how to prepare yeah. for it. Unfortunately, I don't think Aaron Rodgers is really the teacher, um, the mentor. Like if you were drawing up what a mentor looked like at this stage of his life, right? Aaron Rodgers ain't it. Right. Okay. Right. This is a guy who doesn't want to be there all off season. Talking to a guy who doesn't work that, that hard at learning the offense. That's not the example I need for, for Zach Wilson. For Zach Wilson, I need somebody to come in and go, stop being such a daddy's little boy and <laughs> grow a set on your own. Stop talking to your mother every week and let's go, you know, pay attention to football here, right? You know, like that's what we should be be about. Okay. And I say the stop talking to your mother thing. I mean that facetiously, not literally. Oh, sure. But you know, like stop leaning on your parents so much because he's just he's such a coddled little brat in so many ways that like he needs a complete and total change in how he does his work. And unfortunately, I don't think Aaron Rodgers is that guy. Like you bring Aaron Rodgers in, it's to just run your football team and win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. not to teach Zach Wilson how you do this. I, that's how I look at it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I love your backyard. Oh, it's, it's, it is quite nice. 
He's Jason Cole. Thanks, man. Always good talking to you. Uh, likewise. I appreciate it, Howard. Take care. Jason Cole, longtime NFL writer. Uh, you know, I think it's an intriguing kind of a year. I mean, everybody's waiting to see whether or not uh, Sean Grandy is ever going to go into football, but we'll see. We'll see. He is the voice of the Boston Celtics. Uh, you grew up begging for the Jets to make an AFC championship game. That would have been a dream come true. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not Mike Greenberg from ESPN. I mean, I'm sick of what, listening to him groveling. Stop. You're killing me. <laughs> I, I do think the standard does change. I mean, the Jets standard. It's funny. I'm a, I grew up a Jets fan and married a Lions fan. So the standard, and I'm talking to you from the cradle of Super Bowls from the last 20 years, right. the standard is different for every friend. It's funny because when we talk about the Celtics, that's the situation the Celtics were in where the standards and the expectations are so much different and so ridiculously high compared to everywhere else that you're, you know, you, you blow off the notion of the Jets playing in an AFC championship game. That's a big freaking deal. I mean, I'm remembering the one from my childhood and it was 40 years ago. And then there was the other one with Parcells, right? In uh, right. right around the time you were there. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, it's in many of these cities, you're just begging for a crumb that the Patriots get all the time with the Celtics being in five conference finals in seven years, you lose perspective when there are other teams that haven't been in the playoffs in 14 years. And, you know, it's, it's interesting from market to market. Wow. Yeah. He's Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics who succeeded some stiff, I forget his name. Um, let, let's like, you know, I had to follow you on radio here and I had to follow Kevin Harlan on TV in Minnesota. So that was my introduction. Like here's this kid following well, you dude, landed on your feet. Got, I mean, yeah, I survived, but, you know, it's not an easy way to, hey, go in and, hey, Pavarotti just finished. Go sing something for us. <laughs> hey, what did you think when the Porzingis trade, the Marcus Smart trade, uh, I'm sure you heard it, it was brewing. Uh, but the thing, I've been a big fan of Marcus Smart since he was in college at Oklahoma State because he had a little bit of a spat with a with a big booster in the school, and he got ejected out of the game. And, and I thought that he was dealt the, from the bottom of the deck. So I've always rooted for him to do well, and he has he's exceeded that. He's a premier defensive player, obviously. So the Celtics don't have that, but they do have Derek White. So does Derek White step into Marcus Smart's role? Yeah, I think that's certainly the basketball plan. I, I, I'll i tell you the truth, Howard. I don't think it's real here yet. Uh, I think it's just something that got tweeted five days ago, that Marcus Smart is really gone. I don't think it's real here for fans. I don't think it will be real until training camp and opening night or the night that Marcus, you know, we see Marcus wearing a different uniform. Uh, I think it's a real, I think there are people that were surprised how affected they were by it emotionally you know basketball wise you can you can get very cut and dry and say the celtics came out of the deal you know what what's the standard when you gauge a trade as soon as it happens who came out with the best player celtics did and they came out with two first round picks so you look at it from a basketball standpoint you say okay well that's what you're hmm. supposed to do as a gm but man marcus smart has been the very definition of intangible everywhere he's been in college and here and who makes and it's almost what I think it's going to be, and we don't know anything right now. But what it really is is all right, Jalen and Jason. This, yeah, Derek White's going to play those minutes, and yeah, Brogdon will play more minutes, and maybe if Peyton Pritchard stays on the team, then he moves up and plays a few more minutes in the backcourt. That's all well and good, but this is about who's going to make the Marcus Smart plays, who's filling that enormous void, and the illusion that 
this isn't Jalen and Jason's team now in total is gone. Now it's you guys are 25, 26, Jalen about to be 27. It's absolutely your team now, and it's on you. So you get a Chris Dobbs Porzingis. Now you, you go back to last year, and a bit of a roller coaster ride. Beat Atlanta, beat Philadelphia, uh, and then Miami down 0-3, make this tremendous comeback to tie the series at three. And I'm sitting there watching it, and there's a part of me that's rooting for the Celtics to do something no one's ever done before. And they obviously they, they didn't make it, but how much of last year impacted the move to get a Kristaps Porzingis? I think uh, a lot of the last couple of years impacted it. And I think the other part that I don't think that we can truly grasp, that it is not fans' job. Everybody's job is to react to a trade the day it happens. You're not thinking about, as again, you're segueing here from the NFL and everything here is run by Bill Belichick, who has made his reputation among many things as being sort of, you know, this cold analytic guy when it comes to players and diminishing value. Is Marcus Smart? Marcus Smart had a drop-off year this year. He made unbelievable, he had moments and he had plays. He was a big part of a team that went to game seven of the conference finals. Jason Tatum will forever be remembered for his game seven against Philadelphia and the close to game six in Philadelphia when he hit those four shots in a row. None of, Marcus Smart won game six for the Celtics in Philadelphia. None of that happens without Marcus Smart. There's no Tatum game seven. There's no end of Tatum moment in game six. None of that happens and the Celtics go out. So, you know, but is Marcus Smart, he was the defensive player of the year. Right. Two, you know, last season, 2022, did he have that kind of year this year? Is he about to be 30? Is this a situation where Marcus is going to stay at this exact level for seven or eight more years? Or is he not as ideal a defender in a wing three-point shooting league that he has been? These are things that every Brad has to gauge. Mostly, though, this had to do with what fans do not want to discuss or hear, which is the new CBA and the tax apron and how many guys you're going to pay and who fits in these salary slots and a Celtic team that last year Howard was essentially one forward light and one guard heavy. And you have changed that balance, uh, roster balance, all these issues that you dealt to a, not just a first year head coach, not just a rookie head coach, not just the youngest head coach of the league, a coach that you threw in to the fire three days before training camp. And then on top of it had to deal with this roster that never really got balanced. He's Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics, works with my old pal, Cornbread Maxwell. When, when Max told me from the first day Robert Williams walked on the court, he took a liking to this guy. You probably know that. So where does this trade leave him? Uh, where do, what does this do to Al Horford? How do you see uh, what, uh, what uh, Joe Missoula is going to be able to do with these three guys? Well, the two guys you just mentioned, Rob Williams and Al Horford, both have come with limitations. Rob has been injured frequently throughout his career. He has been a more efficient player. Rob Williams is not because he plays so high energy and impacts the game the way he impacts it. You don't look down at Rob Williams box scores. You don't see a lot of 36 minutes, 38 minutes. Rob isn't playing those kind of minutes. And Al, who had this outrageous year coming back in 2022, remember he had been given the year off the year before. You're talking about he was an older player, but he was coming in completely fresh because OKC was helping them win games. And OKC said, we need you to get out of here because you're ruining the plan. Don't come to the practice. You're good. Take the year off. And he came in fresh. You can't expect he didn't play back to backs this year. And at some point, Al Horford was in the draft class with Greg Oden and Kevin Durant. At some point here, 
He's going into his, what, 17th year. So as a big, so you can't expect him to, he's not going to play 40 minutes a night, nor is he going to play back to back. So this notion of how do you fit all these players in? Well, how did the Celtics fit all the backcourt players in last year? Over 82 games, Derek White played all 82, but smart missed games. Jalen missed games at, at certain point. Brogdon has injuries and he came off the bench. So it all fits in an 82 game season. The question is, you have 82 games to figure out what your playoff lineup is going to be. And Porzingis is a guy who can play three, four, or five. So you have a lot of positional versatility. And remember, minutes-wise, the, the way it's leaning today as we're talking, I think you can't expect, you could hope Grant Williams is back, but you can't really expect it given what we think he's going to be offered. Hey, Sean, let me ask you about, uh, I mean, weeks ago, we started hearing word Jalen Brown on the trading block. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, we're talking about he and Jason Tatum as a tandem, as good a tandem as there is in the NBA. Was that just somebody just throwing some garbage out there? I mean, how real was that discussion? Well, I always think that if somebody calls and says, hey, we want to trade, if somebody calls the Celtics and say, we want to trade Grandy for and get Howard David back, and the Celtics say, hey, we're, we're good or whatever, then the trade was discussed, right? By definition, it was discussed. So everything you read, sure, mm. lots of teams have inquired about Jalen Brown because there's that scent of it. The Celtics have a decision to make regarding the Supermax contract, which he's now eligible for, which he's going to get. Celtics are going to ride with Jalen and Jason. This is the way this is going to go. And you could argue, if you wanted to, that they're not the perfect two players as far as fitting together because there is some replication. Well, the Celtics are had the same dilemma on this issue that they do about most of the things they deal with, which is, okay, maybe Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown aren't the absolutely perfect, ideal pair together if you were to invent it in a factory. Well, there's about 27 or 28 teams that say, well, we'll take Tatum and Brown to build around if you know if you guys aren't interested. And it's the same problem the Celtics have as being the team that finished second last year or third this year. They've been one of the top five teams essentially for the last seven years. It's tough being that top five team that doesn't win because the fans here go, this isn't acceptable. We don't celebrate anything but championships. You have to win in Boston. Well, meanwhile, there's 26 or 27 other teams behind you where the second you make a mistake, there's a lot of room to fall. So it, it's going to be Jalen and Jason's team. Jason's Jalen's uh, going to get the super max here and they're going to build around those guys. And, you know, Porzingis is probably going to get an extension. So that's a, a large amount of money committed to those three guys. When I look around the uh, the East, uh, you know, where's James Harden going to be? Is he still going to be in Philadelphia or is he going to Houston? I mean, you hear all these rumors and you've seen them. Uh, but, but now you're hearing Damian Lillard hooked up with Miami. I mean, could you imagine Damian Lillard with Adebayo and Jimmy Butler? Wow. Yeah, hell of a threesome. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, Dame's in a tough spot because it seems, it feels as if he's sort of picking his spots, that we hear Miami and Brooklyn as places he wants to go. Well, given how difficult it is to make a trade and given how important he is to the franchise in Portland, you're really limiting your options is going to make that difficult. I think Miami's in pretty good, you know, if they're willing to move Tyler Hero, that's a contract you can move. <clears throat> Do they have enough picks? Do they have enough draft assets? to make this deal possible the way Brooklyn might, uh, you know, there's, it's tough when a player, look at what Harden did in Houston. When a player says, I want to be traded, this is the issue with Jalen Brown. Once Jalen gets a supermax, then, then you can start talking about rumors. If Jalen suddenly isn't happy, then he suddenly holds all the cards. Players 
hold the cards. We saw Harden hold the franchise. It's so funny that Houston would want him back if they do. That, yeah. by the way, makes zero sense to me at all. <laughs> Why right. you'd want James Harden around all those 21-year-old kids? It doesn't make any sense when you want them to play and you need them to play. But in any case, you know, the Lillard deserve. I think the feeling is he's seen guys like Kevin Garnett, players who have been with one team for so long and have to go somewhere else to compete for that championship, but it's unlikely Portland's going to be able to do it. Uh, and you, you have to make a decision at some point. Am I going to be a franchise guy, play 20 years and maybe never get a chance to win? Or am I going to take a shot at this somewhere? And then what does the team have to do? Phoenix didn't win this year, Howard, because I, I didn't think they could. Everyone said, oh my gosh, they got Kevin Durant. Phoenix is going to win. I said, okay, for Phoenix to win, Phoenix gave up the players that they needed to win the championship. When they gave up Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges, those are the players they needed to win the championship in support of. Now they get a chance to sort of rebuild and we'll see how the whole thing works with, you know, Bradley Beal and whatever, but you have to have the assets coming back. And what does a team have to give up to get Lillard? And then is that going to be enough to win when he gets there? So again, this all goes back to the same thing we deal with in Boston all the time. There are 30 teams. Everybody thinks they're going to win. And you got to be really, really good, and you got to be really, really lucky. He's a Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics. A lot of movement of coaches during the offseason. Uh, a number of them intrigued me. Uh, when, when Frank Vogel got the job in Phoenix, when he got fired in L.A., I thought it was a bad decision by the Lakers. I didn't think he deserved to get fired. Now, when I was doing the Celtics, you know, Frank was a film guy under Rick Pitino. So I would go in there every once in a while and sit and watch film with him to kind of learn things a little bit. And I was always impressed with Frank's intelligence about basketball. So I'm not surprised that he landed back on his feet because he deserved it. He deserved to get fired. You look at Nick Nurse now going to Philadelphia. That's an intriguing hire because I, I think the guy's a hell of a coach. I'm curious to see how all of those pieces are going to fit. I think the Nick Nurse one I like for Philly. I mean, again, did doctors Joel Embiid had his best year. Let me take a step back with this coach stuff because I think we're almost at the point where it's so absurd where, okay, why don't you just fire the 29 coaches that didn't win the championship? Because throughout the course of the year, everyone that was a coach of the year finalist or that had a great year was on the chopping block or actually got fired. Doc had the third best team in the regular season. He takes the Celtics to that most people consider it a better team to seven games with a great chance, obviously to beat them. Joel Embiid has his best year in the NBA and our in MVP year under doc rivers. And they didn't think twice about making that move. So the standard is so ridiculous that it almost screams change for change sake. That said, Nick nurse is a guy that he's so unusual. You can see it running dry with Nick nurse somewhere after a few years, but that's a very fresh voice. That's not just a fresh voice. That's a different, voice with a different approach and maybe that's a you know that's a good thing i'm not a big fan of the coaching carousel but it, it the teams that do well are the teams that tend to stick with their coaches doc is a great example doc could have lost his job in boston after the celtics had the really bad year in 07 he had had three years here they had gone in the wrong direction but danny felt consistency in the coaching staff and consistency with the message with the coaching gm was important and a year later, they win a championship. So I, why there are so many changes, you know, Monty Williams, who does this amazing job, and he lands back on his feet again. I, you know, I, I, it's an odd thing, particularly in Boston. You're, the debate about how important a coach is was had all year here because of the unprecedented. There is no precedent for what happened here in Boston 
with Joe Missoula taking over with the exception of uh, McKinney falling off his bike with the Lakers, right, <laughs> in 1980 and Paul Westhead coming in with Pat Riley and, and winning the championship. There's no precedent for this where a guy came in completely unprepared and all of a sudden had to be the head coach. He gets his team, as you said, to game seven of the conference finals, third in the coach of the year voting. And everybody, if the Celtics don't win a couple of those games in the Miami series, if they don't win game four. If they get swept, the Celtics are probably forced by overwhelming public opinion to make a move. And then yeah. Joe Mazzulla, who was already the youngest coach, imagine, I'm trying to think of when you went, you were in Miami. You were there in, in Miami when Spolstra first became coach, right? Right. Okay, right. so. Go back. You remember a couple of years earlier, there was Pat and Stan Van Gundy and they win the championship. The only analogy I try to give people is let's say Joe Mazzulla ends up being Spolstra or that's his career path. And that's the path he's walking. Imagine now Spolstra in 2010-11 when LeBron gets there and everybody gets there. They go to the finals. You remember that year that they were killing Spolstra. He's not ready for this spot. He's overwhelmed in it. And he got them to the finals. And by the way, that was his third year. Third hmm. full year as head coach. Imagine if they win in 06 and then the next year they throw, or they win in, yeah, they won in 06 and he's thrust in the day before training camp when they're competing for a championship with Shaq and D Wade. And it's three years earlier. And there's this guy from the video room that nobody knew who he was. Right. That's what Joe was. That's what Joe got thrust into this year at the start of camp with other picture this hour. Cause you've been around the NBA forever. <laughs> There were two or three other assistant coaches on that staff this year that easily could have been given that job. And now they come in one day to work and find out they're an assistant coach to a 34-year-old guy who's never been a head coach. And that staff stayed together all year with Damon Stoudemire and Ben So It's an amazing accomplishment that they did. And then we found, you know, now we know who went where. And Damon left in March, which hurt. And Ben Sullivan and Aaron Miles, some of the other guys have gone with Eme to Houston which, by the way, Ime gets the job in the middle of the first-round playoff series. And all of a sudden, you know guys are they're thinking, okay, am I going with Ime? Am I staying? So imagine what this thing just happened. This thing got accomplished. And you were talking about being a coach in the NBA and how fragile it is. I've never seen a more fragile situation than this. So I think sometimes it's just, well, we didn't win as many games as we should have. Well, let's just change coaches. He's Sean Grandy, the voice of the Celtics. Uh, when the Milwaukee Bucks made a change, Budenholzer out, Adrian Griffin in. Uh, After having third, the best record of the NBA. Yeah, right? My first or second year, maybe, maybe it was my third year uh, doing NBA games with then the New Jersey Nets. A young kid named Adrian Griffin gets yeah. drafted in the second round. And I was around him a lot because I took to him. He was a terrific kid. I mean, what a great kid. You sit down and talk to him, and you, you couldn't help but root for this guy. And now here he is as a coach, and I'm going, hey, I remember you when you, <laughs> when you were a young kid. And, and all he did was he was a coach's guy. Everybody loved to coach this guy. Now here he is. He's coaching one of the top three players in the NBA. Uh, Chris Middleton, I don't know if he has made a deal yet with the Milwaukee Bucks. I expect he will. But they're still going to be a viable team in the East. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, this, and they're still Giannis and Lopez, and they've got institutional memory. Um, you know, I, I think most people all year, we were expecting Boston-Milwaukee in the conference finals. And then Miami right. came and had this unbelievable run and took them both out, which is an amazing accomplishment. But yeah, Milwaukee is right. Listen, the East, and that's the other thing for the contenders in the East, it's getting better. It's getting deeper. Milwaukee's going to be back. 
Obviously, the Knicks had that first turnaround year. Can they sustain it? Not sure what Atlanta's doing, but listen, Orlando is going to be, before too long, Orlando's going to start being in this conversation with their young guys and the talent they're building up. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's interesting. The first-year coaches to walk into a championship-caliber situation is always interesting to me, and that's what Adrian Griffin is walking into. Is It's one thing to be Jamal Mosley and get to build a team in Orlando. That's what I was talking about with Eric Spolstra in Miami. Remember, the Heat weren't very good those first couple of years. They had the bad 2008, and they were sort of time to get your feet under you as a head coach. And that's what Jamal has in Orlando and Adrian Griffin doesn't get that same opportunity the way Joe didn't three days before training camp. Hey, let me ask you this, Sean, uh, I'm going to go back to your last series with, with Miami. When you call a game, you have a sense of the way things are going. And you also have a sense about, well, you know what? Uh, a basket here, a basket there. They turn this into a run. Well, here you are game seven against Miami at home and get your head handed to on a platter. And could you see this thing developing during the course of the game in the second half? I would say there was no, nothing was going to surprise me anymore. Like we all grew up in an NBA where home court advantage was everything. Boston and Miami just played two consecutive Eastern conference finals in which the home team ended up wait for it four and 10. Hmm. The home team lost 10 of the 14 games, including both teams, losing game seven on their home floor. So obviously that the home home court meant absolutely nothing. What we'll never know about this game seven was Jason Tatum, the best player in theory in theory in the series was taken out on the first play of the game. He got his ankle stepped on and he couldn't move the rest of the game. So we don't really know that said was everything else going to, you know, who knows? It was not a fluke of a series. We all felt, I certainly felt that night. There were a couple of elements to it. There was the bigger picture storyline about the season for the Celtics, which I'll get to. But in a in a micro sense, Miami outscored them throughout the course of the series. We all felt, I certainly felt very strongly. The series was won for Miami and lost for Boston in game two, not in game seven. When they lost the two home games, but particularly that second one, they created a mountain, as we said, nobody had ever climbed before. The 3-0 deficit was an amazing story. And the 0-4 Red Sox thing being sort of worked into the narrative. Here's one. The I think it was, what is it, 160, whatever the number is, the number of teams that have been down 0-3 and none have ever come back to win. There have been, I don't know this exact number either because I blocked it out of my mind, but there have been about 450 teams in NBA history that have been outscored in an 82-game season. Outscored through 82 games. None had ever been to the finals. None had ever been to the conference finals. Miami was the first to ever do that, which is a much bigger number than the teams that have been down 0-3. And that was an indication that this regular season, was the most, the least reliable in predicting what was going to happen in the playoffs that we have ever seen in NBA history. So that said, there was nothing about the Boston-Miami series. I'm like most people. I lean towards Boston at the start of the series, but I said, to, I said if they lose game one at home, this thing's going seven, and then absolutely anything can happen. So you have a feel, but this NBA season, Howard, you have less of a feel than you have ever had because – it's just been so up and down, and we saw low seeds advance. I mean, the Lakers were had one of the worst. The Lakers in Miami were two of the worst regular season teams ever to reach the conference finals, and they both did it in the same year, <clears throat> which is a pretty good indication. I've got a question for you because it's a play-by-play question. The night after game six, I had dinner with Kevin Harlan and Dave Pash, and our topic, much to the chagrin of my wife, who had to listen to three play-by-play guys bemoaning the fact that none of us got to really call the end of game six with the Derek White tip in. 
And it led uh, to all this discussion. Right, right. This is what. So it led to this discussion we had. Somebody asked me, listen, Twitter is largely a dumpster fire, and it certainly can be. Although once you just block all the obnoxious people, it becomes a much better place. I got a great question. Somebody asked me after the fact, because none of us had a, a signature call or a moment because of the way it happened with the referee. I got asked the question, and I, I thought it was a great question. If you had to do it over again, would you have just called it as if he beat the buzzer? gone crazy or done whatever your call would have been for the Celtics winning the game and then hope that the officials called it that way. And I wrote a longer sort of essay form and posted it on Twitter as to why I think that's a great question. And here's why the answer is absolutely not. And it basically the long story short was officials decide who wins a game, not the announcers. And it was just the moment, but I, I know that you could feel it. And you could certainly empathize with all of us who wanted to have this. You knew this was this unbelievably historic moment sure. that nobody knew. And to me, the story was that we didn't know. that The clock said zero, and we didn't know if Miami had won the Eastern Conference Championship or the Celtics had forced the Game 7 because no, the coaches didn't know, the officials didn't know, nobody knew. See, on television, we're seeing it through the glass. So I, nobody could really tell them watching it on television if who tipped it in, did it go in, whatever. We're seeing the celebration. We assumed that Boston had won the game. But you talk about a dramatic finish to a game. Uh, the fact that it was in the playoffs just makes it even more memorable. But I went, oh, my goodness, what a tremendous finish to a basketball game. And, you know, here, here are the Celtics. I, see, I thought that momentum might carry them all the way. So I was blown away when they got beat by 19 in game sure. seven at home. And obviously you, you felt the same way because you expected a different outcome. Of course. And the building, innocent, the building was insane. I mean, I really expected, listen, what we've learned about Miami is that I thought it would be a game. We didn't, I don't think anyone thought, first of all, there were no results anymore that were going to surprise anybody, but it would seem to me that Miami was going to be in that game. No matter what, they were going to come to play. The world is against us. That's when they're at their best. Nobody thinks we can win. Uh, and, you know, the building was crazy. But then you had the Tatum injury. And it's just, listen, the Tatum injury happened. And you could say, oh, the Celtics are making excuses because their best player got hurt. And then Rob Williams was sick and kept running back and forth to the bathroom and couldn't play. He had a stomach virus, basically couldn't play in the game, food poisoning, whatever it was. But the Celtics put themselves in that position by losing game two at home and game one at home. So you, this is what we always say. It's a cliche. Hey, anything can happen at a game seven. The Celtics put themselves in a spot. The series never should have gone to a seventh game. And, you know, what What happened, happened. And it was uh, as fitting in some ways. And this is the, the storyline for the Celtics at the start of the year was they were driven by the fact that another team celebrated in their building last year. That was the entire baseline of the season was Golden State won the championship in Boston last year, and the Celtics had to listen to them celebrate across the hall. Well, that was, in the end, the storyline that decided it. But everybody forgets because you're so interested in your own team. There was a team that heard another team celebrate in a locker room in their own building, and it was Miami last mm. year. They heard the Celtics celebrating, and that drove them all year to have this dream scenario where they actually got a chance to go on <laughs> game seven in the exact opposite floor and win it. So that, to me, was it was great. NBA storyline. And I, I think there were just too many things wrong. The Celtics convinced everybody that everything was fine. At the start of the year, in the summer last year, they were favorites. Then 
Gallinari gets hurt, lost to the year. That was really significant, I thought, particularly in the Philadelphia series. Rob Williams gets hurt and is going to have surgery and miss half the year. You never really got that lineup straight, and then you had the coaching change of all coaching changes, and it seemed like impossible that the Celtics could live up to expectations, and then they did during the season, and they had the second-best record and number one in net rating, and here they are in the conference finals, and you just expect that all the things that we thought might derail them wouldn't, and in the end, they did. Before I let you go, uh, I know what my answer is going to be to this question, but I'm interested in yours. We both worked with one of the great guys of all time, Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. Uh, I remember some of the things that Max has said, and I've left the arena after a game still laughing over some of the things that came out of his mouth. Cornbread Maxwell, what is the thing you were, who is, what did he say that made you laugh? <laughs> Uh, he says virtually uh, most of the things he says makes me laugh. It's funny because it's a different time and place now. So for those of us that tend to be uh, funny or go for humor on the air, you had to be a lot more careful <laughs> than, you, than you used to be. Um, so sometimes I'm grateful for the things that uh, that we don't get as much attention on the radio side. It's like when I slide over and do TV, I'm not going to do the same stuff that I might do on radio. Of yeah. When I think of Max, I, just, I think of how we – sort of fit together all these years and how that sometimes you just can't. I, I thought when I first got the call that maybe this will be a thing. Maybe this could work and be something that people have for a long period of time, but you don't know until you're actually doing it. I remember our first preseason back in the days when we used to do preseason games. And you remember this when you had the long preseason seven or eight games and you'd take these road trips. And I remember doing preseason games with him thinking, okay, this is going to be a thing. Uh, you know, particularly with the two styles and the way they work. And it's about, a, you know, he's such a unique personality with the, the the country background and he plays that up. So then I play up the city stuff and he plays up the, the plain talk. So I'll use the 25 cent words and it became, it, you know, it's just, it becomes a, a combination. So when I think of him, I think of how we have fit together over the years and how people just enjoy the moments better the way he punctuates them. Yeah, at the risk of repeating myself, maybe I told you this story. We're doing a game in Cleveland, and the old broadcast position was right above the first deck. Great view. That's still there. Court. By the way, they're all oh, there. Yeah. That's now the best. Yeah. Game. Yeah, it's great. Great vantage point. And so Paul Pierce was in his rookie year, and he, he goes one against three on a fast break late in the game. It's close. One or two point game. And he pulls up and takes what I thought was a bad shot. And I pretty much said so on the air and was saying that, you know, I don't know about that shot, given the fact it was one against three. So I said to Max on the air, you know, you better talk to him after the game and talk to him about his shot selection. He said, I'll do it now. He stood up, took his headphones off and said, hey, Paul, why'd you take such a stupid shot? Well, now I'm gone. I mean, I got tears in my eyes, and I probably have told you this before, but that that I've repeated that story many times, and it was on the when I was doing Monday Night Football with Matt Mellon, who had his own caricatures attached to him. We're in uh, we're we're in Oakland, I think, uh, or maybe it was, I forget. He used to play for the Raiders. Whatever opponent that he used to play against, we're close enough to the in the stands to where. The people in the stands look at Matt and they start giving him a hard time. And finally it got to the point where Matt takes his headphones off. He's starting to walk. I said, where are you going? 
He said, I'm going to go down. I said, no, you're not, because if you go down, I got to go with you, and I'm going to get my ass kicked. <laughs> so <laughs> he didn't do it. So then he, he said something to them, and they started laughing, and everything was funny. But when you work with a guy who's got a tremendous personality, as Max does, as Millen does, as a lot of guys that I've worked with do, you play on that, and you leave the game after, oh, that was a good game. Did I call a good game? Did I do my... Did I do the matter right amount of homework and so on? And then you come down to the end and you'd say, God, that was a good game because we had something yeah. chemistry-wise. And you know that. Yeah, I think that was you know one of the things I did this year is, again, talking about TV, what made it so challenging. I love this year because it was challenging to do a game on TV with Brian Scalabrini one night and then to do radio with Max the next night. That's a challenge. That's <laughs> different. It's a completely different animal they are different people they prepare differently they were it's your your you're being a point guard for two completely different players on back-to-back nights it's a totally different setup but everybody's different and again that's part of our job and it's part of what we studied our whole life to be good at our jobs because a big part of it is getting the ball to where our analysts need it and can perform their best and you know max is uh when you get max the ball he's gonna do something fun with it Oh, there's no doubt. And we still stay in contact even now. And anytime I need a good laugh, I call Max. <laughs> <laughs> He's the best. Hey, Sean, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy your time off because I think the Celtics will be relevant once again without a question in the current NBA season. Uh, don't wear that Braves t-shirt in front of a Mets fan these days, by the way. Oh, I, you know, I do this just to annoy my son-in-law, who's a Mets that's, fan. That's, uh, it's, been, it's been a rough go since it was my son, who's a hybrid, because he's grown up in Boston, so he roots for the Red Sox, but also the Mets because of me. So he's kids now, they have more than one team in different sports. But, yeah, it's been a rough – Red Sox are kind of hanging around. But, man, the Mets thing has been a, it's been a rough, rough go. Yeah, they're struggling. You know, I don't take great joy in it. You know, they've had a lot of success, too. But that's not the team that I look for as a Braves fan. I look for, at Miami, how well they're playing. Yeah, look out. Look out from Miami. Yeah, Miami's in Boston. Uh, yeah. Contra's pitching tonight. They got some great young arms. Yeah, and Philadelphia is tough. And, uh, and they got a long way to the end. But, uh, you know, I like their chances. And, and if Ronald Acuna right now is not the MVP of the league, you tell me who is. He's a killer. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. You got it, my friend. He's Sean Grandy, the radio voice, sometimes TV voice of the Boston Celtics. Uh, does a great job. And yeah, I'm proud of this. I'm proud of this. I am a Braves fan. I tell you that. I've always been a Braves fan. Not always. I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And then they betrayed a little boy that I was then. Made me cry. They moved to LA. And I said, I'll never root for the Dodgers again. <laughs> if you get no pleasure out of doing this kind of stuff, talking with guys I know, like Sean Grandy, like Jason Cole, like us, guys that I've spoken to over the course of time, it's fun. We exchange stories, have some laughs. Can't have fun doing this. You're in the wrong business, my friend. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live at a Bite of the Big Apple. You stay safe.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.